All right, welcome to our class tonight. We are in First uh, John chapter four, and as as my dear my dear buddy Mick and I were trying to figure out how to do this, we came ready to go chapter four into two sessions, and we realized, you know what? There's so much repetition. John is so great that he is. Uh, he he talks to you like a fifth grader talks to you. Like everything is very concrete. Everything is either fair or not fair. Everything is just either or or. And John keeps banging the same note on the drum week after week after week. So as we planned this on Saturday, we're like, oh, what are we going to do? And you know what? I bet we could combine these two. And so we're doing all of chapter four tonight. Don't worry. It will uh, go faster than you think. We'll have, uh, we'll have a great time. Um, but our class tonight is called Dichotomy. What's a dichotomy? A dichotomy, you've heard that word before. You may not have thought too much about it. A dichotomy is a division of two things that are opposed to or entirely different. So there's two things in your life that you think they go together, but really they're at war with each other and they're different. Some people would say faith and science is a dichotomy. It's like they, they just kind of oil and water if it'd be a dichotomy. And so tonight we're going to look at dichotomies. And you can see... Two spirits, two perspectives, two loves, two responses, and two choices. Now, our text tonight is going to begin with this idea of testing the spirits. Now, before you get all weird kind of, you know, 80s seance kind of movie or something, this is dealing with this biblical idea of discernment. And we'll get into what that means here, but I want to open with this. I've got five lines I want to give to you. And I want to know what you're doing with them when I give them to you. Here we go. Number one. God just wants me to be happy. God expects me to be... Or no, so I'll stop. God just wants me to be happy. Yeah, exactly. So I, you, I just absorb that line and think about that for a second. Here's number two. I need to learn how to love myself better. Okay, just take that in. Maybe you've heard some of these things. Maybe you feel them. Maybe you are right there. I just need to know how to love myself better. I think my problems would go away if I just learn how to love myself better. Number three, I can't move forward until I forgive myself. I can't move forward until I forgive myself. I really need to learn how to forgive myself. I counsel a lot of people in depression. That line comes up more often than not. I need to learn how to forgive myself. Here's number four. God doesn't care how I live my life just as long as I come back home to him. That's kind of like a woman who has reconciled herself to her husband's adulterous ways and says, well, it doesn't matter where he goes during the evening. He's going to come back home and lay in my bed and go to sleep. He comes back home to me, we're okay. He stays out overnight, we're not okay. God doesn't care how I live my life as long as I come back to him. And number five, my personal favorite, you've heard this one, you might have said this one. God never gives us more than we can handle. Now, each of those five, they may not stick in your craw the way they stick in mine. Neither of those five is biblical. Neither of them are. Absolutely none. God just wants me to be happy. Wrong. That makes God to be like, oh, I just want him to be happy. I don't really know what I'm going to do with my son, but you know, I just want him happy. I just want him happy. No, God doesn't want you anything. God expects you to be something. Faithful, holy, obedient. I need to learn how to love myself better. Wrong. That's like, that, that happened with pop, with pop psychology and God's word. They, they took it this way. They said, okay, I'm supposed to love God and I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. Aha! I got to learn how to love myself or I'll never love my neighbor. I preached that a long time ago. I thought big of myself. Oh, I got this figured out. Yeah, I did a whole class on loving myself. And, um, yeah, I have, I have an advanced master's degree in loving of myself. That's why Jesus said, deny yourself. The answer to self-hatred is not self-love. 
It is to get over yourself. Humility. Okay, I can't move forward till I forgive myself. Where's that at in the Bible? Forgiving yourself. It's not. And what that comes down to is this. Romans chapter 8. There is no longer any condemnation for those of you in Christ Jesus. So, if God is not condemning you anymore, why the heck are you? Why are you in God's place to say, well, I have to forgive myself? As if, okay, what sacrifice are you going to offer to forgive yourself? Because the sacrifice that secured your forgiveness from God is Jesus on the cross. Now, is it, is it the idea of, okay, I need to accept the forgiveness I have in Christ and get over it and, 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 and just rest in that forgiveness? Yes. But the idea, I can't move forward till I forgive myself, you're not God. If you, you are forgiving one person in life, the person who sins against you, Otherwise, you are asking forgiveness, you're repenting. God is forgiving you, others are forgiving you, and no time in the Bible are you forgiving you. Number four, God doesn't care how I live my life as long as I come back to him. Well, um, that's kind of like saying God didn't care for the prodigal son when he was being prodigal. Profligate, you know, living, wasting. No. Yes, he did come back. But the father's love was so evident for that prodigal son, he was running. He was looking for the boy. And when he sees him, he's like, yeah. The only time in scripture where God is said to run. God never gives me more than I can handle. The only, only verse in the Bible that tickles that is in 1 Corinthians 10, where it speaks about temptation. And that there is no temptation that has seized a hold of you where you have no way out. There's always a way out. But that's not how people use it. People don't use it with temptation. Oh, with temptation, God's not going to be more than I can handle. No, that's the point. If you can handle it, you don't need God. The correct way to put it is, God's not going to give you something more than he can handle. That's biblical. Otherwise, I, I've spent a lot of time with this line. It is, continually sticks in my craw. It is a pop psychology stuff. Yeah. These things may not stick in your craw yet. But why do I keep saying that? Because the more you practice biblical discernment, you'll begin to listen to these so-called truths that our culture tosses at us. And well, let's go to our blanks. Discernment is training your thoughts to think biblically. That's what discernment is. Training your thoughts to think biblically. Discernment, next one here, discernment uses the Bible to distinguish truth from falsehood. I don't like error. Truth from error. Making a mistake doesn't sound like a sin. Making a mistake is like, well, I know I should have ordered that, but I ordered this instead. I learned my lesson. Versus a sin, which is, okay, I'm going to intentionally defy someone. In this case, God. Discernment uses the Bible to distinguish truth from falsehood. Discernment is training your thoughts to think biblically. Discernment uses the Bible to, to, to distinguish truth from falsehood. Two spirits, one to three, before let's pray. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this evening, for these men and women who are studying your word together with me, braving the cold weather, the ice and the snow, Lord, to find uh, rest in the warmth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Dear friends, do not believe and check out, you open up your Bibles at 1 John chapter 4, check out the verbs in these sections. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. Again, Antichrist is a term that John coined. That's his term. We can't find sources before John saying Antichrist. And John, as we said before, was unique. Every other, other biblical authors describe this man of lawlessness or Antichrist as this outside figure pounding on the church from without. And John is painting him as somebody from within. That is uh, going out from inside the church and dividing already from within. So we have two spirits here. 
the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Antichrist. The mission of the Spirit of God is to testify about and glorify Jesus, guide truth. If you ever go to a church that makes a big deal about the Holy Spirit, I think they're missing the point. At no point in Scripture does the Holy Spirit make a big deal about himself. Ever. I mean, ever. At no point is the Holy Spirit like, this is my turn. And I'm going to get my way, and this is what I'm going to do. The Holy Spirit, well, let's look here in John 16. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, Jesus says this, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, and this is Jesus talking, because it is from me that he will receive what is being made known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he made known to you. This is the Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. This is the Spirit. At no point is the Spirit pointing at himself and saying, aha. No, Jesus does that. But Jesus points out the Spirit because the Spirit points back to Jesus. So there are certain church ministries that really kind of, if I could dare say it, do they over-deify the Holy Spirit? Do they spend way too much time with Him? I don't know. I, I, that, that's something I struggle with theologically because the Holy Spirit, in fact, you'll notice here, this is something I was struggling with with my other teacher, and I was just like, I, I want to put more about the Holy Spirit on our, work, our worksheet page. But the Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. He works organically. He works behind the scenes. You know, we, we at the bridge talk about connecting people with God, connecting people with people, and connecting people with service. That's the Holy Spirit doing the work behind the scenes. He doesn't get the credit, but he doesn't seek the credit. He always is behind the scenes. He always bridging, is bridging that gap. So, that's the Spirit of God. Testifying about and glorifying Jesus. Guiding us into all the truth. The mission of the Spirit of Antichrist is to deny, distract, divide. Now, your theology matters. Because John is expecting his church, who is getting all this input from all these different teachers, who are given these denials and distractions and divisions, John makes it really easy for them. Again, one more either or. That either or is, well, what does he say? He says, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Wow. You may be thinking to yourself, really? That's going to be his dividing line? This is going to blow your mind. Theology matters. Let's just say for a second that Jesus, the Son of God, never came in the flesh. That there was no incarnation. The first advent of the Messiah never happened in the flesh. Well, there would be no Messiah at that point. But let's just say that that was the case. If you think to yourself, well, come on. Of all the things to believe, really, that he came in the flesh? I mean, I get that he's God, but he has to be man? I mean, really? Yeah, watch this. If you take that off the table, look what gets affected. Christmas has no meaning anymore. Like zero. Like less than zero. Christmas is nothing if Jesus isn't a baby. If the word has become flesh, what's Christmas? Um, the Gospels completely lose their power. We read about Jesus being tempted. We read about Jesus being hungry and thirsty and dealing with things that we deal with in our flesh. The Gospels, it's like, I can't trust the Gospels anymore if Jesus isn't real. If he's not really struggling, if he's not really being tempted by Satan or anything, if that's all just, just like a metaphor, what's the Gospel at that point? What is salvation? The temptation narrative has no meaning where the devil leads him out into the wilderness and he's fasting, he's hungry, and he turns these stones into bread. Well, if he's just some kind of spirit, if he's not really flesh, that has no meaning. The Lord's Supper has no meaning. This is my body, broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant, the blood of the covenant, poured out for the sins of the many. What the heck's that supposed to mean? If he has not come in the flesh, what is his body? He has no body. This, this, this item of theology impacts almost everything of value. Okay, what else? Um, the whole link back to the Old Testament sacrificial system in Leviticus and Numbers and Exodus. Eh, goodbye, there's no link anymore because there's no sacrifice anymore. 
Because sacrifice involves blood, involves a death. And if he doesn't have a body, if he's not really a man, God really can't die. Okay? The whole link to Passover, Passover, innocent substitute dying, and that blood is spread over the lentils of the door, and now the, the angel of death passes over you because of the sacrifice of an innocent creature. Jesus, the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, the innocent taking our place like that Passover lamb took that place. Eh. He doesn't have a body. That's gone. How about my sins are not, not truly paid for now? Yeah. Oh, yeah, God paid for my sins. I don't know how, but he, he said he did. No, if Jesus doesn't bodily die, suffer, die, buried, and then bodily resurrect, my sins are not paid for. I have no hope. I have no hope of a resurrection because we sing at Easter. Because he lives, I know, oh, oh, I will face the future. Okay? Life is worth the living just because he lives. He no longer is dead. He is resurrected. He lives. I now know one day I will resurrect. Jesus says to Martha, don't you know I am the resurrection and the life? Well, yeah, of course I know that, Jesus. There's no hope anymore of that. You see, the gospel is becoming neutered. If Jesus is not in the flesh, if God does not take flesh, salvation becomes a shell game. See the P? It's right here. Now, okay, here we go. Da, 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 da. Where's it at now? Is it in the right one? The left one or the center one? Because there's really nothing else to salvation at that point except God satisfying himself metaphorically with our sin being paid for metaphorically. I don't want to put heaven and hell on a metaphor. I want to put it on the blood of Christ. That right there, I need assurance. How about Jesus and I can never really identify with each other? I like the fact that as my high priest, he can identify with me what it means to be tempted, what it means to struggle with the temptation to sin. He never did, but he was tempted. That gives me hope. That gives me marching orders to be like Jesus. The whole doctrine of progressive sanctification where the Holy Spirit is slowly and surely making you more like Jesus means nothing if Jesus did not come in the flesh. <sighs> so evidently there are people out there in John's <clears throat> world dividing the church saying, kind of like how the Gnostics would later do, say, oh, the flesh is all sinful. Everything that is spiritual, that's where it's at. So you can sin in your flesh and it doesn't really matter as long as you're okay with your spirit, with God. That kind of nonsense, that kind of crap's being put out there in John's day. And John's like, listen, all this, this data you're getting from people, all the white noise, you know, the white noise that back in the day when your TV would lose signal, like three in the morning, all of a sudden, you know, we'll sign off now, have a good day. All that out there is just being attacked, you, all this nonsense being put at you. And John's like, listen, it all comes down to this. Theology matters. You take one little thing off there. You take one of those cardinal doctrines out of the play. Everything comes crashing down. You're not a Christian at that point. If Jesus is not incarnate, God incarnate word made flesh, forget about it. So we got two spirits. One wants to glorify Jesus. One wants to glorify everything else. To divide and distract and deny. Two perspectives, four to six. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because, they, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoints of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Two perspectives. The first perspective is the Holy Spirit, he authored the Bible and uses the Bible, it is his exclusive truth. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. God penned the words of the Bible by means of the Holy Spirit. Look at every prophet. And the word of the Lord came to, well, how did the word of the Lord come to Isaiah, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, through God's Spirit? Where, excuse me, Paul pictures the Holy excuse me, pictures of God's word as God breathed. Breath, same word as, as wind, as spirit. God's Holy Spirit penned the Bible. He inspired the biblical authors to speak his words. God communicating with us by means of God, the Holy Spirit. 
So the Holy Spirit authored the Bible, and he uses the Bible. It is his exclusive truth. Number two, the world at its core rejects the Bible for that very reason. Who do you think you are? Exclusive truth. Please. How dare you? What do you mean exclusive? You understand truth, really, all of the compendium of thoughts in all of human history, and this little nobody place in, in, uh, 2,000 years ago. And you know, Seriously, God wrote down through these, these guys in Palestine. Seriously? Exclusive truth. The world rejects at its core the Bible for that reason. Because agenda and narratives matter. Once you take absolute truth out of the equation, watch what fills that void. What is popular? What makes people feel good? Narratives and agenda. Because if there is no truth, then truth is, 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 is like democratic. And democracy is 50 plus 1. And then the 50% plus 1 can vote for anything. And they can decide truth if they wish to decide truth. We see that in our culture all the time. When you deny God's truth, you fill it with other truth. So the two perspectives here. And I like how, see, at my core... I'm a small church pastor. And as a small church pastor, we worry about things like attendance. We worry about things like, oh, geez, this family's not here. I wonder what's wrong. And I can see some of that here in 4 to 6, where he says, they're from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. So I remember days as a small church pastor where I did not have a lot of people to preach to, and I'm thinking, wow, all these other things are winning. All the attention is going to this and going to that, and then not to God's word. And it began to feel like, well, maybe I'm not much to write home about because of that. Well, that's beside the point, because John calls it here. These people are of the world. Of course the world's going to listen to them. So in our ministries, and we just happen to be at a church that is growing mightily. God is doing a wonderful thing through our church. Amazing what God is doing. But it's tempting to ponder about, well, why is this other ministry here successful? Why is this one successful? Why does I'm not saying they're of the world, but in this dividing case here between the ones who are in John's church, and they're, they, don't, they don't seem to be doing very well, do they? They're really discouraged. They're hurting. And John's having to keep telling them the other ones seem successful because they're worldly. And of course the world's going to listen to them. Why wouldn't they? So take heart. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth the spirit of falsehood. So we have two spirits. We have two perspectives. Honestly, verse 4 is the great perspective that every per persecuted person needs to understand. The one who is greater is the one who is in us than the one who is in the world. The greater, greater is the one who is in you than he who is in the world. The world thinks it's winning. Every time the world persecutes them, we have brothers and sisters in China right now, sisters in Nigeria right now, who are facing give up Jesus or die. The world raises its ugly head and slams. But every persecuted Christian has to remember that greater is he that is in them than he who is in the world. That's the perspective that every persecuted Christian must hang on to. And there's going to come a day when we have to face persecution. We may not face it like they are. We have to remember, as we are told to love our enemies, when our enemies are hurting us, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And honestly, who is the one who is indwelling us? The Holy Spirit. Paul calls us the temple of the Holy Spirit. We like to tell kids, invite Jesus into your heart. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's really the Holy Spirit who day to day is with us. Two spirits, two perspectives. What needs to change about your doctrine? The blue question there, right, right before it. Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's great stuff. What needs to change about your doctrine? You see, 
the reason why Mick and I were looking at these two texts and saying, well, we can do this together, because we were going to stop at 1 to 6, and that was going to be our first lesson, and the second lesson was 7 to 21. But 1 to 6 deal with doctrine, 7 to 21 deal with the other side of doctrine, practice. Kind of like all that you need to know, and then all that you need to do. Doctrine needs to show itself in how you practice that doctrine. So what needs to change about your doctrine? I don't need you to tell me. I need you to tell your paper. What is it about your doctrine that needs to change? Are you, think about it this way. Well, let me, let me, let me answer the second question, and that might help you answer the first. The second question is, how does a person ever believe correct doctrine? Step one is Bible. Step two is Bible. What do I mean by that? You want to believe the right thing? You want to know what God really wants you to know? Get to know God. How do you get to know God? Do you need some kind of, you know, extra special, you know, cross your legs, sit on a mountaintop and go, um. Do you need some kind of weird metaphysical experience where you burn some incense and you, I don't know, eat a deep dish pizza and go to sleep and you have weird dreams? Is that what you need? No. You need to get into God's word. Because those opening statements, if they did not stick in your croft, they did not get you to go, eh, I don't know. I think I better go to the Bible and find out because those, those, those aren't sounding right. There's something about them that is off. And you see, until you honed that, get in your Bible. I'm not perfect in that, but people can talk about stuff and all of a sudden my spidey sense will go off and go, mm, something just, just sounds off about that. Let me double check. And that double check is, okay, let's look at my notes. Double check is, let's get into God's word. You see, what you believe better come from the Bible. Now, we preachers and teachers, we can help you understand the Bible. We'll journey alongside you. But at no point are we saying, yeah, 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 I know the Bible says that, but I got this. No. No, 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 no. That is not right, ever. And if a church or a preacher does that, make some phone calls. If I do that, don't stand for that. I may come up with a novel way to describe God's word, probably not, but it's possible, I guess. A preacher or a teacher may come up with a great way, an author may, okay, yeah, here's what God's word says, and here's how I understand it. Okay, that's different than here's what God's word says, but you know what, I got something new. You inform your doctrine by reading God's word, understanding God's word, and take that understanding and build it back into God's words. Okay, here's what I think I understand about that. Does it fly with scripture? My favorite part of the My Cousin Vinny movie is when he has her on the stand, he goes, does the defense's case hold water? And she, at some point she goes, no, the defense is wrong. Love that part. And she rattles off some automotive knowledge and the whole thing, boom. Does your biblical doctrine hold water with the Bible? Does it? The Bible is your judge on this. People say, oh, when someone says scripture interprets scripture, they're just wrong. No, you need to go back and filter it through what God's word's already said. Okay, and that's, that's, that's how you get correct doctrine. And then talk to people you trust and go, hey, I, I'm, I'm understanding this from God's word. What do you think about that? Sounds right. I like how you came up with that. Or, you know, I hear what you're saying, but it doesn't fly with this. I'm just saying. And you give that person permission to talk into you. And you talk into them. That's how you believe the right thing. You be a part of a good Bible-believing church, read good, solid, biblical you know, teaching and, and the studies that handle God's word that way. See, this is why, in, in, as we study theology, it always comes back to God's word. It's kind of like when you button up your shirt, you get the top button right, everything else comes in line. You, can, you could mess it up, I guess. But if you get the top one right, you're good. You get the Bible right, you get your understanding that God's word is your foundation. It is it. Now, it's going to be harder to mess up because you've got the first thing settled. So what needs to change about your doctrine? If you are not going to God's word for what you believe about God, you need to change that. If you're going to other sources that are not God's word, that needs to stop because that's not biblical doctrine. That's the doctrine of somebody else. I'll just be bold and say it. Go back to God's word. Okay, two loves. We have two spirits, two perspectives, two loves, seven to 12. Oh, that was something that, one of my first memory verses for my song. Let's see if I still have it. 
All right, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing it in the King James. You look at your text. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. First John 4, 7 and 8. I don't know how old I was, but that's always been in my mind. Yeah, God's word. Isn't it great? Dear friends, let us love one another, but love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one who has ever seen, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. His love is made complete in us. Two loves. Two spirits, two perspectives, two loves. Number one, God loves you. And before you get all hippy-dippy and go, oh, God is love. Oh, that's great. Let's get some flowers. Let's have a magical mystery van and travel the countryside. God's not love in the same way that you understand love because God has no sinful emotions the way you have sinful emotions. We discussed that. God is love, and then John describes how God loves. A John 3.16 kind of love. For God so loved the world, he did what? He gave. Love means giving. Giving of his son who came in the flesh to die in your place. That is love. That is love. That's the kind of love God is. A sacrifice, a servant, a selfless. Those three S's we talked about weeks ago, love is selfish, selfless, sacrificial service. That is John 3, 16. That is how to love. That's how a husband's supposed to love a wife, how a wife is supposed to respond to her husband. That is how we are supposed to respond to God with a selflessness. Jesus says, follow me by denying yourself. Yeah, that's how God loves us. So the first love is God loves you. The second love is love others in a manner that honors God and identifies you as belonging to God. The way you love people honors God. It also identifies you as a Christian. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. We've said this before. If you are someone who is not known as a loving person, you're wrong. Shame on you. That needs to change. You need to love other people to honor God and to... And, and, and to what did I say here? Your love in a manner that honors God and identifies you as belonging to God. If anyone says to you, I had no idea you were a Christian, you're a jerk. You never are a fan of anybody. You never celebrate anything with anyone. You are just always so mean. You're just, you're just gosh, you're a Christian? You want to talk about joy? So you have no, you have, if that's you, if the world looks at you and goes, ugh, I want nothing to do with that or the church they go to, or the, the Savior they claim. If that Savior makes people like that, count me out. That's exactly the opposite. Now, love doesn't mean you're a doormat. Love doesn't mean you just love everything. You never stand up for any truth or anything like that. No. Jesus, excuse me, God the Father took a great stand for truth by giving his son. When Jesus says, I am the only way, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, that implies 11 chapters previous. No. Yes, 14 minus 11 is 3. John 3, 16. That implies John 3, 16, that for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And that paves the way for no one comes to the Father except through me, because I was the one that was given for you. So now you can come to God through me. The eyes and me's are Jesus, of course, not me, Joel. But you know what I'm saying. My command is this, John 15, love each other as I have loved you. That's a quick verse. Love each other as I have loved you. You are to love God and love others, and how you love others communicates your love for God. Our culture says you've got to do this. Oh, you love me, you've got to tolerate what I do, and then you, got to, you have to accept, not just tolerate me, you have to accept me, then you have to approve of that, and then how dare you speak against me anymore? No, that's not the way how God works. That's a slippery slope of tolerance all the way to acceptance and approval. That's not the way God works. God doesn't change the truth by how he applies it. Ever. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. No one's ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. 
I like what that implies. I believe God is sovereign, and you should too. At no point has God ever depended upon me, but I like the word image that, that Paul, John gives us here. God's love is now complete in us. God chooses to use you and me to complete that image of his love. That's beautiful. And by the way, how, what, what's it say here? Um, whoever does not love does not know God. Okay, this is how God showed his love. He sent his one. This is love here, verse 10. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son into the world. We're going to get there in verse 19. This is some fun theology. Here we go. We have two spirits, two perspectives, two love, two responses. Here we go. 13 to 18. This is how we know that we live in him and he live in us. He has given of us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in God lives in love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, pardon, and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Two responses. The first response is following the leading of the Holy Spirit, growing in love, growing in confidence, and growing in reliance. The closer you get to God, the less fear, as in fear of punishment, takes over. The less you have of that, the closer you get to God, because you're living to please him. Those who are distant from, distant from God, is like, oh, geez, I don't know what God's going to do with me. I'm terrified of God. The closer you get to God, the less fear plays a role, because love taking over. Love gives you confidence. That's the first response. The second response is not following the leading of the Holy Spirit. Growing in self-reliance, uncertainty, and fear. Oh, that's another one of those self-words. I'm so self-reliant. Okay. That works for things like, yay, my mom is dealing with this. She's had to learn things now that my dad has died. She never had to pump gas before. That whole, the whole thing with the credit card, the pay at the pump, all that kind of stuff. She never had to do that before. So she had to learn, okay, there's certain things you do, the buttons you press, and you go out there, with the, no matter how cold it is, you put it in the thing, and you, you squeeze it, and you wait for the things to tick by. She's never had to do that. She's having to learn to do things by herself that she never had to do. That's different than saying, God, I got this. This life, I'm going to rely upon me. Because just how I had to learn how to tie my own shoes, how I had to learn how to, I don't know, Use a fork and a knife at the dinner table. How I had to learn how to do all these things, long division, the times tables. All the, I had to learn all these things on my own. I got to rely upon my knowledge, yada, yada, yada. God, I got this. That kind of self-reliance is missing the point. And it's really easy in the atheistic or especially the agnostic world to, to lean upon that God of self-reliance. Says, you know, maybe I just don't need God. I got this. You don't. All you have is the sin that you bring to salvation that needs to be dealt with. You can't do anything about that sin. Nothing. You don't have this. You never will have this. See, that's the second response. Holy Spirit, whatever. I'm going to grow in my own self-reliance and my uncertainty and my fear. I like what Jesus says in John 14. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the thing, will teach you all things, and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I live with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, do not be afraid. Why? Why do you not let your hearts be troubled? Why are you not afraid? Because Jesus is going to heaven. But he's not leaving you like an orphan. He's not abandoning you. He's leaving his Holy Spirit who is going to do things in you that Jesus does not. While Jesus was on this earth, he does not do what the Holy Spirit is going to do. Jesus did not indwell people. He was walking around. But now by his Spirit, he indwells the Christian. Two responses. We know we rely on the love God has for us. Whoever lives in, lives in love lives in God and God in them. 
Love's made complete, so we have confidence on the day of judgment. I want confidence. I don't want to get there at judgment day and go, well, it's a coin flip. That's kind of the best that Islam can offer. It's like We hope that Allah forgives us. We did all the right things, and we, we, we just kind of hope that there's no real assurance. There's assurance with Christ. There's assurance of Christians. This is what we have. This is our thing. Our past no longer has to own us. It can be dealt with. Our past can be put in its place. It no longer has to just completely wreck ourselves with our own past. Our present has hope, and our future is assured. Our present has direction, our future is full of hope. That's our thing. It's everybody's desire, whether they admit it or not. But that's what we have. Wow. Two responses, two choices, 19 to 21. We love because he first loved us. Pause. That kind of just solved the whole predestination free will thing right there. Who loved first? God. Who made the choice first? God. He loved you before you ever even thought. He answered a question that you hadn't even thought to ask. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God who they have not seen. And he has given us his command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Evidently in this church, there was an issue with these people who were seceding away from the church. They just hated everybody. They just did not love each other in the way that God wanted them to love each other. They were known for not love. We discussed that last week, love and not love. They were just so subtle. There was something about this other cultural movement going on in John's day that just nobody saw that and said, yeah, you love each other. I want that. I want to belong with people. I want to experience this kind of great friendship and camaraderie and journeying with me. These guys, these, these guys I can lean on and gals, these gals that you can lean on. It's like, I want that. I don't want to be alone anymore. I want people to grow with me and I want to grow with them and I want to be a part of something. And I'm sick of being, this world just keeps beating me up and, and destroying me and making me feel horrible about myself and all these things. I want to come to church and finally go, ah, yes. Ah, that's what I needed. But evidently when that doesn't exist, it's like wandering the desert and finally finding that oasis and the oasis is not really there. You try to drink from that pool and it's all just nothing. A church is that oasis in this cultural desert. We are the ones that can love each other and not expect things from each other, but just actually just genuinely care for each other. Two choices. What you believe guides what you do. No dichotomy between doctrine and practice. Remember dichotomy? The two things were at war with each other. If what you believe is shown in what you do, you are not a hypocrite. We call this practicing what you preach, doing what you believe. Other choice, what you believe does not guide what you do, there is a dichotomy between your doctrine and your practice. So which is it? You have these beliefs, and God bless you. I'm so glad you do. Believing the right thing is half the battle. G.I. Joe ended with knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe. Yes, knowing is half the battle. What's the other half? Doing. They never said it, but it is true. You got to know the right things. G.I. Joe. Yo, Joe. But you got to do it. That was my childhood. Every, every end of the, every episode, knowing is half the battle. It is. Doctrine. What you know. And then practice how you do it. Satan has got great doctrine. His practice is abysmal. But he knows. Satan knows. He knows who God is. Dude was quoting Bible verses at Jesus like it was nothing. He knows his Bible. You kidding me? Satan's not messing around. He's got the doctrine all day long. He doesn't practice it. He's the definition of a liar, the father of lies. So how does doctrine lead to practice? Well, the Holy Spirit convicts you of the truth 
He then leads you in the truth. And then he gives you power to obey. That third line divided the church in St. Augustine's day. Augustine once prayed, give us the truth, Lord, then give us the power to do it. And his rival Pelagius is like, what are you talking about? I have the power to do it. We all have the power to live God's way. And that was the big to do. Do you have the power to live God's word on your own? Ever? Outside of the Holy Spirit's guidance? My argument from scripture is no. No. On your own, you will never choose God apart from the work of God in you. We love him because he first loved us. That's my argument from Scripture. Otherwise, all I have to do, it's like the people who say, yeah, socialism is great. It just hasn't been done the right way yet. It's like, well, if we do it the right way, it'll all work out. It's kind of like saying, this is similarly applied to this. Yeah, the perfect person theoretically could exist. They could keep all of the laws and be just fine and never need Jesus to die on the cross for them. No. We have a sin nature because of Adam. We are born with a sin nature. We are already sinners. On our own, you will never choose God. You will always choose yourself. Scripture is clear. Until God works in you, you will never choose him. I love what Ephesians, or excuse me, Ezekiel 36 says. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will do them. But first he puts the spirit in you. Then you will do them. Or how about Romans 8 to 13? I can't read my, my writing here. If, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit, how do you believe? How does doctrine lead to practice? The Holy Spirit convicts you of the truth. The Holy Spirit leads you as you, as you live your life. And then the Holy Spirit, as he progressively makes you more like Jesus, gives you the power to obey. And the expectation is that you do obey and you do not grieve the Holy Spirit. What needs to change about how you live, what you believe? You knew that before you listened to my lesson tonight. You know the ways in which you are a hypocrite. Oh, I know mine. Oh, please. I'm going to listen to this later and be crying. It's like, ah, oh, you talked about that, Joel. How about you answer that question again? Oh, yeah, I, I, I listened to this podcast over and over. I'm like, oh, geez. I'm not, I'm not let off the hook. There's a reason why I'm so passionate about teaching you. Why I'm yelling and I'm sweating and I'm doing all this stuff because God's kicking the tar out of me. I'm a broken dude and I need this. I need this. I can only imagine you do too. I don't have everything figured out. I call this class Master Class Theology not because I'm the master but because we're learning about the master. I mean, I am the proverbial Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall and I'm trying to put myself back together again, but it ain't ever happening. Ever. I have to depend upon God. So what needs to change about you and what you believe? See, this all comes down to God's truth. Oh. But how is God's truth decided? I know my Catholic friends have other books in their Bible. How do we get this Bible? How do we ever get this truth that we're supposed to believe? Wasn't there some kind of big, like, church council and they had their, their agendas? You talked about agendas. I bet they had agendas. They liked their certain books. They didn't like these. How did that all come about? I want to close with that. Because it came about by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit showed up in a way in church history that it was amazing. Oh, this will give you shivers how it worked. One of the great heroes of the faith Athanasius. Google him later. Athanasius of Alexandria, sometimes called Athanasius the Great. One of the great heroes, one of the great church fathers. Alexandria, Egypt. He stood up against Arianism. Arianism, the prequel to Jehovah's Witnesses. He stood up to them. And in AD 367, so that's 300, less than 300 years after Christ, he wrote a letter it's like a festival letter. He was writing some letter to like some festival they were having. And in that letter, he lists all 27 books of the New Testament. Lists them down and says, hey, guess what? The churches are using these 27 and only these 27. 
This is 8,300. So don't give me no church council. Yeah, later church, the last one I believe was the Council of Trent did the full and final. Like, yep, we agree. But what happened was that they looked at the, the books of the Bible and they said, well, did an apostle write it or someone close to an apostle? So for example, John Mark, not an apostle, but tradition says he was Peter's guy. Peter never has the gospel. kind of does. It's the gospel of Mark, essentially, according to tradition. So is it an apostle? Um, does the doctrine stay consistent with the rest of what we have? And third, is it being used by the church? So if you say, oh, there's a great conspiracy, it's the, this, this stinking council said, oh yeah, these and not those. No, what the council did, they said, what's being used? What are all these churches doing? Well, they're using these 27 books. And the other books, they say, well, we can read them. A good one is Clement, First Clement, Clement of Alexandria. Same town where Athanasius is at. It's a great, great epistle letter. You read a lot about church history, like, wow, this is great. They would read things like First Clement and go, wow, this is really great for reading. But for some reason, we can't preach it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit didn't write it. And so he's not going to use it. And so they organically were seeing what, what books that the church was using. And so the church council didn't affirm the church can the biblical canon. They just recognized. Mm, you better recognize. Yeah, that's what they did. They just recognized. They were like, oh my gosh, these 27, God is changing the world around these churches with these 27 books. The Holy Spirit's working here. We're seeing it happen organically. We're recognizing his penmanship. These are books of the Bible because the Holy Spirit is working. These others, these apocryphal books, these pseudepigraphal books, these kind of other ones, the Maccabees, all that kind of stuff, they have value. They do. But the Holy Spirit is not working through them. So they saw this organically. They didn't decide what the canon was. They just simply recognized. That gives me shivers. That tells me that the Holy Spirit is sovereign. He preserved this word so that when we finally get past the first century, past the third century, to our stinking 21st century, we can have faith that the Holy Spirit has preserved his word, not written to us, but preserved for us. So we can lean upon his word as he teaches us, as he guides us. So there's not a dichotomy in our life between our faith and our practice. And that is our motivation as Christians. Theology matters. And if you don't think you have a good theology, open up God's word and study. Get to know this God who has given you himself. He gave his son. He's giving you his will and his way his motivations, everything about him in the pages of his word, that you may fall in love with him and do what he says and have the greatest possible life. Dichotomy, 1 John 4. Thank you for letting me share.